Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, for the message, Who Am I? All right, so from our text today, we're gonna confidently answer this question. Who am I? The truth is, everybody sees themselves in a certain way, and most people derive their sense of personal identity from a number of different things. And so when it comes to Americans, most Americans still accept the, mo the uh, notion that my family, right, my nation, and my faith make up a significant part of how I view myself. That's most people in America. In fact, in 2015, the Barna Research Group released an article. The article was called, quote, What Most Influences the Self-Identity of Americans. And as we look at the first graphic, we're gonna see from Barna's study what Americans listed as what's central to their personal identity. So number one, as you see there on top of your screen, my family. Number two, being American. Number three, their religious faith. And so that might be Christianity, it might be something else, whatever faith they ascribe to. Number four, their ethnic group. Um, number five, their career. And then you see at the end there, their locale, their state or their city. Now while the top three, uh, as, they, as they did the survey, the top three, right? My family, that's number one. My um, nation, that's number two. And then number three, my faith, my religious faith. You, you guys need to know that the religious faith actually came in a distant third. So as you look at the next graphic on the screen, the question was asked, well how much are each of the following a part of your personal identity? And you see there that 62% of adult Americans derive a lot of their identity from their family. And then 52% said, I derive a lot of my identity from the fact of my American heritage, but only 38% derived a lot of their identity from their faith, and then it goes on from there. So what does that mean? That means that fewer than two out of five adult Americans would say, I derive a lot of my identity from my religious faith. Now when it comes to born again Christians, when it comes to our identity, I think Everything has got to change. Everything's got to be different. The question shouldn't be from where do we as Christians derive our identity. The question needs to be from whom do we derive our identity. So if you're taking notes, where in the world or from whom should Christians receive their identity? And you guessed it. Welcome to church. We need to receive our identity from Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're a Christian. And even the name Christian implies that we're followers of Christ. He's a really, really big deal in our lives. And so since we're followers of Jesus, well, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we derive our identity from the one who is eternal, right? Who left his throne and added a human nature to his already eternally existing divine nature? who wrapped himself in human flesh, who lived the life, right, that you and I couldn't live, and then died the death that you and I should have died on Calvary, 
The fact that he died for our sins and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and you know what he's doing right now? Right now he's praying for us as our high priest. Shouldn't we as Christians derive our identity from him? You tell me, yes or no? Yes. Yeah, we should. Somebody says, well what about our family? What about our nation? What about our ethnicity? What about our career? What about our locale? Well those things are important, especially your family, but I don't believe we should primarily derive our identity from those things. Why? Because we belong to Christ. We are his. You were purchased. And the price that Christ paid to purchase you, it was big. It was his blood. Okay, so we should derive our identity from him. And the great thing about this is that when we do that, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us as we turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And now all of a sudden, he's beginning to change us. And now all of a sudden, we're compelled, we're motivated that, hey, yeah, I should be committed to my spouse and to my kids and to my career, be the best I can be at what God has called me to be, and to my local church, et cetera, et cetera. And so Peter today, as we're gonna see in our text, was very concerned with how Christians viewed themselves, and he wrote about it. So the question is, how should we answer the question, who am I? Well, Peter's gonna tell us today in the two verses that we're gonna go through. So if you were with us last week, he already showed how Israel, the nation of Israel, rejected their Messiah. They rejected their cornerstone. And now he's writing to a different group of people. Right now, if you're looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, can you say amen? So I know you're there. So here's our two verses. Writing to the church, Peter says, but you are a chosen race. Can everybody say chosen race? Go ahead. We're talking about our identity. We need to get this. We need to let it go from our head to our hearts. You are a royal priesthood. Can you say royal priesthood? Go ahead. Royal and a holy nation. Go ahead and say that. And a people for his own possession. So say, say I'm, a child of God. I'm a child of God. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. I love this who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How many of you guys are so happy God did that? Called you out of darkness to his marvelous light, right? He says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We're talking about our identity. We're God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter used some beautiful words, right? in order to answer the question, who am I? And his answer is, you're a chosen race, you're a, a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, and you are a child of God. Now, Israel, the nation of Israel, used to have this honor um, before the Lord, but they rejected their Messiah. As I said last week, John 1, verse 11, Jesus, he came unto his own nation of Israel, and his own received him not, and because they rejected their Messiah, very key verse in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, Jesus said to the nation of Israel and to their leaders of his day, quote, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, look at this, and given to a people producing its fruits. What people is that? The church. The church, by the way, which is made up of Jews. 
and Gentiles who have turned to Christ in repentance and faith become one with the Lord Jesus Christ and one with one another. That's the church. And so as I said last week, God, because God is a promise keeper and not a promise breaker, uh, he hasn't canceled his promises for the nation of Israel. He hasn't canceled his promises for the physical descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, he's postponed them until the second coming. But now, in this age of grace, he has a new chosen race. He has a new royal priesthood. He has a new holy nation, and he has a new special people, and that is those who have received Jesus, his son. This is a big, big deal. Again, John 1:11. he, Jesus, came unto his own. His own received him not, but, verse 12, as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And so today we're gonna look at Peter's identity descriptions, what he has to say about our self-identity. We're gonna take them one at a time. I hope you'll take notes today. If you're taking notes, as Christians, we are, number one, a chosen race. A chosen race. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very controversial topic in the church today. I'm sure you've heard of it. And I already dealt with it a month ago, but we're gonna dive deep again into this concept of what does it mean to be a chosen race. What are we talking about this, this afternoon? We're talking about your identity as a Christian. And you need to know that you are part of a chosen race. As it says in chapter one, verse two, we are, quote, elect chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's our identity. Elect according to the foreknowledge, you can't leave that out, of God the Father. That means that before God created the world, he chose us in accordance with his omniscient knowledge of all things, including our free choices. And you need to know that God does not violate our free will. He does not force himself upon us. He could have created us and wound us up as robots so that we can all walk around because we're programmed to say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. But thank you, C.S. Lewis, for helping us to remember that without choice, you can't have true love. You guys get that? There's gonna be any real love, there needs to be a choice. And so what we need to come to grips with today is that since God exists in the eternal now, he's not limited by time and he does not think chronologically. See, part of the problem of this whole debate is that we like to think that God is like us, that God is limited, that God is finite, that God thinks chron chronologically. You know, God's eternal, God's infinite, God is necessary. He's the first cause. And so God, who exists above the space-time material universe, he is not bound by time. Therefore, there is no order to his determination to elect us and his omniscient knowledge of our free choices. Determination to elect us, omniscient knowledge of our free choices, those two things are one in him and they are coextensive in their reach, which means they exactly match in their extent. For example, you might have a zip code area, 
and that zip code area is coextensive. It exactly matches the limits of a certain city. Is everybody following me? So everybody in that city has the same zip code. So just like the zip code is coextensive with the city limits, so God's determination to elect us and his omniscient knowledge of our free choices, those things are coextensive. As Dr. Geisler stated in his book, I quoted this a month ago, quote, we should speak of God as knowingly determining and determinately knowing from all eternity everything that happens, including all free acts. I wanna again recommend his book. I've been studying for years, and I personally, my opinion, I think this is the best book on the subject when you talk about predestination, when you talk about election. I think this is the best book on the market. Dr. Geisler is with the Lord now um, in heaven, but he left us, I think, over 120 books, great resources. And so Norman L. Geisler, Chosen But Free, A Balanced View of God's Sovereignty and free will, a great, great resource. And so let me, let me um, uh, share an example of what we're talking about. So again, here's the quote. He said, we should think of God as knowingly determining and determinately knowing um, from all eternity, everything that happens, including all free acts. For example, let's say you watch, you record a football game. You're a football fan, you record a game. Did you know that every time you go back and watch that recorded game, it's gonna be exactly the same? For example, in regard to Super Bowl 55, you guys knew I had to do this, right? <laughs> if you're new to Calvary, I am from Tampa, very proud of it. My dad used to park cars. You guys are getting some free information in 11.30 service that other services didn't get. My dad used to park cars for the Bucks back in the 70s and 80s. So when I was a little kid, I used to get into all the games for free, but there was a problem. They lost every single weekend. <laughs> so I love, I love the fact of what happened two weeks ago. Uh, but as you see at the bottom of the screen, a glorious result, right? Tampa Bay 31, and how many points for Kansas City? Nine, they didn't even score a touchdown, right? Just three field goals is all they could do against the Bucks defense. Now here's what, here's what I want you to know. Every time you rewind it and you watch it again, it's always gonna be the same. Not just the score, but each individual play. Like the amazing touchdown pass that Tom Brady threw to Rob Gronkowski for yet another touchdown uh, for the Bucks. You need to know, I, I waited two weeks to brag on him, okay? And so. <laughs> And so the result of Super Bowl 55, listen to this, if you're with me, say amen here. The result of Super Bowl 55 is determined, it's fixed, it's locked. <laughs> Yet, each coach and each player freely made their choices in the game. God is transcendent over the space-time material universe. He's not limited by that or by anything. 
He exists in the eternal now. And so God looks at the future the same way that you and I look at the past. Like a recorded game, he sees the future as determined, as fixed, as locked. And yet we, as the players in the game of life, freely make our choices. And ladies and gentlemen, you need to get this, and please get it well, that you and I will absolutely be held responsible for our free choices. We're gonna be responsible for it. Now, every illustration breaks down, and at least most illustrations break down in a couple points, and so here's what I'm not saying, okay? I am not saying, like many of us, just sit back in our lounge chair and passively watch a football game, that God is sitting back in his throne and passively watching humanity live their lives. No, here's, here's what theologians do. As they look at a doctrine, before they just take one or two verses and make a doctrinal statement, they, if they're responsible, look at the whole book and what every single, they carefully examine every single verse that has to do with, it's called systematic theology. Every verse that has to do with a certain doctrine, they carefully examine it, and then looking at the whole thing, that's when they come up with their doctrine. And so what you need to know is when you look at the whole Bible, God is very active in history. What's he doing? He's loving, he's guiding, he's persuading. I'm gonna talk a lot about this this afternoon. He's giving light, the light of his revelation, and he's working out his will. Why? Because we know that all things work together for good for those who, are, uh, who, those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. God's sovereign. God spoke to my heart about this on the way home from Chick-fil-A last night on St. Lucie West Boulevard after Saturday night service. He is sovereign, but man has a free will. Is it a mystery? Yeah, to a large extent. We'll never figure it out on this side of eternity, but here's what you need to know. We can absolutely, confidently teach what we know the Bible says, and both are true. I'm also not saying, right, the illustration breaks down in a couple points. I'm also not saying that you know, we're so good and we're such winners, that's why God chose us. No. You know, somebody says, well, Coach Bruce Arians put together such an amazing team, the Buccaneers this year. They were so good. And you know what? I'm, I'm so good too. I'm such a winner. And that's why God chose me. <laughs> Wrong answer. The Bible says there's none righteous no, not one, for all, can you guys say the word all? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth is, in our BC days, we disregarded God, and yet he, because he's so good, still initiated a relationship with us. Even though all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, all of us are born in sin and we choose to sin, you need to know that God is such a God of grace that he still gives us light. What does God do? Through the two great revelatory lights, creation and conscience, God draws people to himself. Ladies and gentlemen, creation shouts that there's a creator. Look at the witness of creation in Romans chapter one. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Who? Humanity, right? And so, real quick, everybody look at me. 
Um, one of the top five questions you're gonna get if you're a serious question, a Christian is what about the people who've never heard? You gotta be able to know how to answer that, otherwise people aren't gonna take you seriously. They're not gonna take the Christian faith seriously. And so I will develop, I will in a process answer that question, but, but look at this. Concerning the witness of creation, what can be known about God is plain to humanity because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Can you guys say the two words clearly perceived, please? Because there is this, this small group of people way over here, and they'll try to tell you that you're so dead in your trespasses and sins that you cannot perceive anything from God. That's not true. We're made in the image of God. The problem is the same group of people say that when uh, because of the fall, the image of God has been totally erased from your life. It's not true. It has not been totally erased, it's been effaced, it's been um, negatively affected, but we all still are made in the image of God. We have reason, and you need to know that his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. The problem isn't that, that humanity doesn't perceive, the problem is that humanity doesn't receive. There's a difference between perceive and receive. The problem is that humanity suppresses the truth. They walk away from the light of creation. And so namely, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And in these things that have been made so that they are, what's the last two words there? Without excuse. All right, so go outside on a clear night and look up, and if you're really honest in your heart, you will know that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth knowledge, and night to night reveals knowledge, and I love this, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Everybody gets this light, this light of general revelation. Creation shouts to everybody, hey everybody, there's a creator. Creation shouts it, and if people will just respond to that light, here's what I know, God will give them more light why? Hear my heart today. 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What I want you to understand is the heart of the Father. And so if they respond to the light of creation, God will give them more light. And eventually they're going to know, you know what? God is infinite. Whoever did all that, stars, moon, God's infinite and I'm finite, he's necessary, and I'm dependent and contingent. God is the first cause, and I as a human being, the planet I live on, in fact, the whole universe is an effect. If you go to a store, and you see a little snow globe, and you look at that thing, and you look at the little house, and you look at the trees, and you shake it up, and you see the snow uh, floating around, um, you can reasonably determine a few things. Number one, that thing hasn't always existed. Why? Because it's material. And material is an effect, it's not 
a cause. Every effect needs a cause. And by the way, number two, it didn't just appear. Why? Because something can never come from nothing. <laughs> nothing ever came from nothing and nothing ever will. Therefore, number three, that little thing must have been designed by somebody with some intelligence. All right, so if we believe that about a small ball that has obviously been designed, why in the world do we have such a hard time believing that about a larger ball that also has obviously been designed? Why? Why don't we get it? Because we suppress the truth, Romans chapter one. We walk away from the light that God's trying to give us, Romans chapter one. And so when you look at the larger ball, hey, you know this, it hasn't always existed. Why? It's material. And material's an effect, and every effect needs a cause. It didn't just appear. No, because something can't come from nothing. Nothing came from nothing, and nothing ever will. Therefore, it must have been designed. And this is why we teach intelligent design. Here's the principle. When we see things that have been designed, we know there must have been a designer. Whether we're talking about small objects or large objects, whether we're talking about a little snow globe, or whether we're talking about planet Earth. The argument for God's existence from design, it's called the teleological argument. If you go to Got Questions um, and you type teleological argument, uh, it'll say this about life forms. Clearly, every life form in Earth's history has been, look at this, highly complex. A single strand of DNA equates to one volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica. You think that just happened? The human brain has approximately 10 billion gigabytes of capacity. The same article, as you continue to read it, says this about the Earth. Literally hundreds of conditions are required for life on Earth. Everything from the mass density of the universe down to earthquake activity. Right, so everybody look at me. If this is the sun and this is the earth, the earth's revolving around the sun, right, then we all know this one. If the earth's any closer to the sun, what happens to all life on earth, right? Any farther away, what happens? We all freeze, right? But there's so much more than that. By the way, that means there's a designer because that doesn't just happen. No, there's hundreds, hundreds of things for life. Everything from mass density of the universe down to the earthquake activity must be finely tuned in order for life to survive the random chance, right? But isn't that what's taught in schools today? It just happened? The random chance of all these things occurring is literally beyond imagination. And so the Holy Spirit uses the witness of creation. Hey, there's a creator! <laughs> and he uses the witness of conscience within to give light to humanity. Look at Romans chapter two here, talking about conscience. Paul says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, the Bible, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they don't have a Bible, they show that the work of the law is written on their what? 
You see that? While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so even people without a Bible have a conscience within them and it either is accusing them of sin or it is excusing them, letting them off the hook. In other words, everybody, I don't care if you're saved or you're lost, everybody has a conscience, everybody has a moral law written on their hearts. And so if there's a moral law written on our hearts, where does that come from? If there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. All right, and so Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is gonna convict the world, what? Of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And so what is the Holy Spirit up to in the world? What in the world is he doing? He's using the witness of creation without and the witness of conscience within as two great revelatory lights to humanity. And if they would just respond to the light, God would give them more light. God will move heaven and hell to give somebody more light. Jesus says, seek and you will find. And he's using these two great revelatory lights to convict people, convince people, and draw people to God. And as they respond to the light he gives them, he gives more light, eventually culminating in the light of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he died for us and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming back, special revelation of the Bible. Let me give you this example, again, Pastor, what about the person who never hears? Okay, let's say you got a guy and he's lost in the middle of the night in a jungle somewhere. He can't even see the hand in front of him, it's so dark. And somehow he stumbles on a hill. He goes to the top of the hill and he looks and way over there he sees a little tiny light. Maybe it's a city, who knows? There's a little light. Okay, so what should that guy do? What should he do, church family? <laughs> yeah, go toward the light. Respond to the light. And when he responds to the light, guess what? It's gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger. And what's gonna happen? Eventually, if that's a city, he's no longer lost. He's saved. But what if this guy sees this light way over there, and he's like, eh, turns around, walks off into the darkness, and is lost. Let me ask you a question, whose fault is that? His. Thank you for being engaged. It's his fault. Everybody wants to blame everything on God. It's not God's fault. See, humanity sins, and then we wanna blame it all on God. Stop listening to the wrong voice. Listen to the truth of God's word. And so what does God do? God, little tiny light, all, all humanity gets this light. Little tiny light, general revelation, creation conscience. What should he do? He should respond to the light. And if that person will respond to the light, that light will get bigger and bigger. And listen, God will move heaven and hell to get that person the gospel. I don't care if he gets a track in the mail. I hear stories about uh, Bibles falling out of buildings and hitting people on the feet and they read it and they're saved. I hear about people having dreams about Jesus in, in third world countries that, where there is no gospel witness. Listen, God, God will send Jonah to Nineveh. Why, he loves those Ninevites. Even though they're wicked sinners, 
God loves everybody. And if Jonah, the preacher, says, no, I'm not gonna go because I'm a racist, and he decides to go in another direction, guess what? God can send a big fish to swallow that guy, turn him around over to the other side, spit him out on the beach, and say, son, you need to go. And he preaches, and what happens? They all repent, and the city is saved. That's an Old Testament example. What does God do in the New Testament? God sent Peter to Cornelius. Why? He's responding to the light. God sends Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch, way out in the middle of the desert. Hey, Philip, Holy Spirit says, go, go down that street. And I'm thinking Philip probably thinking, um, that's nothing but a desert. <laughs> Am I hearing from God or is it my pizza from last night? Uh, okay, I'm gonna go. And lo and behold, there's a chariot and there's a guy who's responding to light and he's reading from a scroll and it happens to be Isaiah 53. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless somebody shows me? And Philip preached Jesus to this guy. Listen, we need to understand something. God's not willing that anybody should perish. But here's the problem. The problem is spoken by John in John chapter three, verse 19, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's not that they didn't perceive the light, it's they chose not to receive the light. And so, if somebody turns around from that light of general revelation and says, eh, whose fault is it? God's or his? His fault. Now, God reveals himself primarily through two, I keep saying this, revelatory lights, right? And that is natural revelation, that's creation and conscience, and then special revelation. That is his awesome, amazing word. And so here's what you need to know. If you're with me now, say amen here. Listen, you don't get saved from general revelation. Everybody hear that? You don't get saved from general revelation. God uses it to draw people, but you cannot be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Respond to the light, he'll give you more light. Listen to the word of God, Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how, um, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For those of you who share your faith, for those of you when God gives you an open door at your workplace or your neighborhood or your family or whatever, and you walk through that and you unashamedly begin to speak about Jesus, I just wanna say, number one, thank you, and number two, God says you got beautiful, beautiful feet because you're willing to share. How many of you guys are so grateful that somebody somewhere got the gospel to you? If you're happy about that, right? So this is what the church is supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be sharing our faith. Maybe it's as simple as handing out a gospel of John. Right, this is the Pocket Testament League, ptl.org. You can get these things for free. If you wanna make a donation, make a donation, but they'll send you as many as you want. And in the front of it, is the gospel presentation right here, and then you have the gospel of John. I, if you hand out tracts, praise the Lord. 
I think this is better than a track because this is the whole gospel of John. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so, hey, whether it's sharing a gospel of John, sharing a track, uh, sharing your faith, uh, being sent out to go plant a church, being a missionary, this is the things that we should be doing in order to be used by God to share his special revelation, but then I would be remiss if I didn't read verse 18 of Romans 10. Paul says, but I ask you, have they not heard? Has humanity not heard? Indeed, they have. For, he quotes Psalm 19, their voice, the voice of creation, has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And so here's the recap before I go to the next point and then we'll finish up. The recap is this, mankind is in darkness. God has given everyone the light of his general revelation. If they respond to that light, he'll give them more light. If they turn their back, it's their fault. If you, this morning, have responded to the revelation, the light that God has given you, and you've turned from your sins and received Christ as your Savior and Lord, my encouragement to you, end of verse nine, is that you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If you receive Christ as your Savior, you need to know in your heart of hearts, you're a chosen race, that God knowingly determined and determinately knew from all eternity that you would belong to him. If you're taking notes, we're a chosen race, but number two, we're a royal priesthood, and I, I won't spend as much time on the last three, but please stay with me to the end, okay? Royal priesthood, two terms. Now you think about this, this is a great way to, des to describe Jesus. Jesus is royal, and he's a priest. He's a king, right? That means that he's not just any king. Revelation 19, 15, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then he is a priest, but he's not just any priest. Psalm 110, verse four, he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that wonderful Old Testament type of Jesus. So Jesus is a king. That means that he rules over us. And he is not just a king, but he's a priest. That means right now he's praying for us. And yet Peter says, you, you are a royal priesthood. Okay, what's my identity? I'm a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. That means that not only have those two terms come together in Christ, they've come together in you. You're royal. When you think about your identity, you're royal. You say, why am I royal? Because you're a child of the king. If you come to God through Jesus Christ, you're a child of the king, and nothing will ever change that forever and ever and ever. And so guess what? One day you're gonna reign and live with him in his kingdom, and depending on your faithfulness in this earth to God's will, you will rule over, some of you will rule over 10 cities, some of you guys are gonna rule over five cities, some over three cities. This is the kingdom age. It's coming like a freight train. It's gonna happen, and so we should start thinking about it, we should start planning for it. You're a child of the king. You're a royal, and then priest, priesthood of the believers. I'm not gonna re-preach the sermon last week, but we 
We don't need a mediator. We don't need some man to get us to God. No, we go right into the presence of God having been washed in the blood of Jesus. It's like, hey, Dad. You say, you're being disrespectful. No, I'm not. You've been washed in the blood. He's your Abba Father. And it's like, hey, son. Hey, daughter, come on up. That's this new covenant relationship we have with the God of the universe. And not only do we go directly into his presence, we offer him spiritual uh, sacrifices, as you heard last week, that is our body, that is our prayer, our praise, our good deeds, our gospel ministry, our financial gifts. And so we're a chosen race, we're a royal priesthood, and if you're taking notes, we are a holy nation. Okay, so holy, hagias, what does that mean? Set apart. Nation, what is that? Ethnos, a people group. What does it mean to be a holy nation? It means a people group that is set apart for Jesus Christ, which means that we're different from the world. We have a different leader. We have a different manual for life. We have a different priority, a different way of living. We have a different leader. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody says, I've accepted Jesus as my savior. Uh, do you think I should accept him as my Lord? What do you guys think? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. We have a different leader than the world has. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Our leaders are not politicians. Our leader is Jesus. And not only that, we have a different life uh, life manual, it's the word of God. I just heard this past week, I went to uh, Christianity, um, Christian Post, the Christian Post, and there's an article, it might still be there if you wanna look at it later, but there was actually a pastor this past week who said to his congregation, this is not God's word. That's what it's all coming to. But guess what? In this church, we believe, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man, anthropos, that means humanity, man or woman, this is for you too, all you ladies, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word, this is our life manual, this is our love letter from heaven. We have a different leader, a different life manual, we have different priorities. What does that mean? While the world is running after whatever to try to fill the void that will never be filled by all that stuff, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, these needs will be added to you. And then we have a different way of life, like the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five, six, and seven, all those red letters. I encourage somebody um, memorize the Sermon on the Mount. You say, Pastor, it's three chapters. <laughs> Give yourself a year. It'll change your life. Memorize it. But if you don't wanna memorize it, at least read it, because that's, our, that's the way we live. Why? Because we're a holy nation. We're a people group set apart from the world and set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, here's your last point, we're also, if you're taking notes, God's own people. 
John said, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we gotta come to this, this uh, reality as those who've accepted Christ as our Savior. We gotta come to this reality. And that is that we are children of God and boy, does he love us. Now that's hard. We'll get it in our head, but it's so hard to get that down in our hearts. We understand it as a theoretical concept, but ladies and gentlemen, it's so hard for us to experience this in our lives, but we got to get to the place as we understand our identity that man, we're children of God and God really, really, really loves us a lot. Now, the two primary ways that I learned to grasp this concept, the two things, one was studying the word of God, right? If you read it enough, it starts to dawn on you. But then number two, it's when my wife and I had three daughters. When I became a father, I'm telling you, I really got this. Obviously, that's a more current picture from just a couple of years ago, but when those three girls were little and I was in my 20s, all of a sudden, it was like, oh, you know, now I get it. Why? Because I started to experience a certain kind of love I had never experienced before, and that's the love a dad has for his kids. Now I get it. If I, as a fallible father, have so much love in my heart for these three girls, how much more does the infinite, infallible, perfect God in heaven love me? That's what you gotta understand. You gotta let it go from your head down into your heart. And you say, well, how much does God love me? His, you'll never get it completely this side of eternity, but his love for you is like an ocean. I mean, it's big, it's vast, it's deep. It's life-giving. And just like you go out to Atlantic Ocean this afternoon and those waves just keep crashing in and crashing in and crashing in. You go tomorrow, they keep crashing in. You go, if the Lord tarries 50 years from now, guess what? Those waves are crashing in and crashing in. That's God's love. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. What we gotta do is get off the lounge chair and jump in and get wet and start to, to swim and splash around in this amazing love that a father has for us. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's people and we're also, you guys can take a picture of this because I'm not gonna teach all this because I know we all gotta go home. But when you're thinking about your identity, maybe you wanna pull out your camera and take a quick shot of this. Here's the truth. We're loved by God and we're justified by faith and we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, not our self-righteousness. And we're born of the Spirit. We're washed in the blood. We're indwelt by the Spirit. We're citizens of God's kingdom. We're fellow heirs with Christ. And we're eternally secure because part of the bad English, ain't nobody gonna pluck us out of the Father's hand. And you know why you need that truth? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil in this fallen world is constantly telling you lies. Over and over and over again, the world criticizes you, right? You can't do anything. You're worthless. The flesh condemns you. What's wrong with you? You blew it again. 
The devil deceives you. You sinned too big this time. God can never forgive you. And so all of that is lies, and the only way you combat lies is with the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the sword of the spirit. We combat the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil, and we rehearse the truth. We are not conformed to this world. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. And I close with this. If you're here today, and you would say that you've been hurt in the past, and you've been wounded, and you have some deep emotional wounds, from whatever, whoever said about you at some point in your past. Here, here's the truth. The thief, he may have come to steal, kill, and destroy you, but never forget this. Jesus Christ came to give you life and give you life more abundantly. That's our Lord. So, go to him, listen to what he says about you, let him love you, let him heal you, jump in that ocean of love, splash around, and enjoy your Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen?